land is thawing, and the sun is staying out a little bit longer. Now is the time to celebrate the awakening of the earth and prepare to seed the ground. But what does the egg in the earth mean to the modern practice? Why do we rely on Groundhog's Day to predict the weather, and how has this holiday been adapted into Candlemas? In this episode, we explore the sacred Sabbath of Imilk, on witchcraft deconstructed. This is your resident wizard, Reverend Wade. And I'm librarian and witch, Cassandra. And today, we are rolling right into, or we're coming up on, the next holiday, which is uh, Imbolc. You, you mean and Imbolc, Reverend Wade? That's exactly what I, that's what I said. That's a, you don't say that B. <laughs> Literally, every time. Every time? Every time. <laughs> it's, it's Gaelic. They like their letters in the language. <laughs> Like toss in some extra letters. <laughs> <laughs> they sprinkle it like seasoning. They do kind of. Welsh is even worse. <laughs> Imolk. All right. So this is a holiday that I do celebrate, but I think, and I'm gonna I'm gonna reflect on how I celebrate it, and then I'm gonna pitch back to you so we can kind of get brushed up on some history and some other additional celebrations. But in my practice, as I had been taught. This was that time of year wherein it was sort of the egg in the earth. You were putting your intentions into the earth. Your intentions were in the womb of the earth, waiting for them to be birthed soon as spring comes around the corner. And in fact, if you did the right thing for for May Day, bless, that's my huge brain fart, excuse me. If you performed the right acts during Beltane, then this would be about the time when you would be very showing. And you would be just about ready to give birth. So that's how we celebrated. This was a period of time in which we were putting our deepest intentions for the coming year into the earth, either quite literally, sometimes, we would quite literally bury it. So that's, that is how we were taught, and the practices would kind of vary, but they would vary with that sort of intention. So I'm going to pitch to you, since you have some deeper insight into this holiday, and give us the spin on this. So, so Imolk literally means in the belly. Mm-hmm. That is the, the definition of the word in the belly. So you've already kind of covered that aspect, right? Mm-hmm. This is the time of year where hopefully your sheep are pregnant. Um, they're getting ready to give birth. You know, you're, this is the, the middle of winter. Your stores are starting to get low. Things are getting lean. You're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. So this is the time of year where you're really starting to look forward to the return of spring, the return of light, the return of the growing cycle. It's the time of year you're starting to think about the growing cycle. You're starting to plan out what crops you're going to put in for the rest of the year, but you still can't really do anything. You're still sitting at home in the middle of the snow, well, hopefully inside of a warm home in the midst of a snowy countryside, and all you can really do is sit there and and think about these things. So this is a really good time of year for divination, for looking forward to the coming year. There's a lot of hope at this time of year, right? You're hoping to make it through the winter. You're hoping your stores, your food stores last you're hoping that your farm animals give birth so that, you know, have new animals for the the fall harvest. Because remember, you've killed a lot of your animals at Samhain. You've only kept 
you know, the ones that you want to breed so that you can make it through the winter. So now you're hoping that your animals are going to repopulate. And yeah, it's a really, it's a harsh time of year. There's a lot of uncertainty right now. In terms of breaking it down, this one I think is really interesting. This one is very mythology-based. There's a lot of mythology around Imolk. This was one that a lot of people know as Candlemas through the Catholic Church. Or St. Bridget's Day. Or St. Bridget's Day. Slightly different days, but really close to the same period of time. Uh, It's within days of each other. The goddess Bridget was very important to the Celts. She was very important during this time of year. She is one of the few... We can argue about deity and who and what is deity, blah, 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 whatever. But the goddess Bridget was totally co-opted by the church and turned into St. Bridget. St. Bridget was said to be the daughter of a druid. I think Bridget is a really fascinating sort of evolution, female deity through the centuries. She's a smith. She's the goddess of the animals in the fields. She's the a goddess of women. She's a goddess of war. Like, she really kind of has all of her fingers in the, the various pies, right? <laughs> like, that you could probably make an argument. That She's very utilitarian, she is. it like, sounds like. You could really call on the goddess Bridget for many things. But she's a goddess of the forge. And this is the time of the year where you're really being forged for the next year. When I look here and I see this sort of adoption, when we take a god or a goddess and you get this sort of invasive faith, and I say invasive faith, any faith, any any faith that comes into a country, comes into a land, comes over people, is invasive by that very nature. So I'm using Christianity here, and I don't mean invasive necessarily in a negative tone, but whenever you have an invasive faith come in, you're going to find adoption. And the reason why is because whatever is important to the people is going to continue to be important to those people. You can't just wipe it out. Economies then, and even economies today, are based on traditions. So it's in the interest of an invasive faith to then adopt the most important aspects of that culture in. So the goddess Bridget becomes Saint Bridget, and she can kind of carries over a lot of her characteristics. So one of the things that I remember in my teaching was my high priest had a candle that he would light, the various candles, he would light the page candle that then would light the rest of the candles in the circle. And But the, what was particularly special about this candle was that it was lit from the perpetual flame of Bridget in Ireland, that evidently there is a place wherein there is a flame that is kept going, Well, I guess. That's yeah, the flame of Bridget. And I, I think that it shows sort of how widespread and how important her worship was across the British Isles. That It's always impressive that, that what survives another faith coming in, that, that the other faith wasn't so strong as to completely wipe away or wash away the mythos and the culture, particularly the strongest icons of that culture, that some persist and as a result have to be adopted. Well, and I, I was joking at Lunasa and at Mabin that high ritual wasn't really the point. You know, it was, it's the eating, it's the celebrating, it's the traditional games. But for me, Imolk is one of those where you do a lot of high ritual 
you know, very formalized, traditional things. And Sky clad, right? <laughs> it's usually a little too cold this time of year for that. If you, <laughs> if you want to be really hardcore and you got a bonfire outside, go for it, guys. But I'm kind of old and my feet get a little cold this time of year. So, but one of the things that you do at Imolk is the bride's bed or the breed's bed. The goddess Bridget is also the goddess Breed. And you open the door and you welcome her in. Traditionally, there's a corn dolly that represents Bridget that you lay in a bed. I actually make a bed every year for this corn dolly. Uh, I understand. <laughs> I remember this tradition. It's just the one where you got to set out a little bit of food and drink. It's a bit like, like Santa Claus. It's a little bit like Santa Claus. Uh, usually you lay her down with uh, a club of some sort, a very phallic club you light a lot of candles and essentially you leave the room and you kind of let them be and in the morning when you come back you look for signs of movement and if there has been movement then hopefully things are in the belly (laughs) things have happened and the house is blessed and the good the the next year is going to be a a good year so hold on i want to just back up just make sure i get this right uh Rather than Santa Claus coming and eating and drinking and leaving you presents, Bridget comes, she eats and drinks, she has sex in your bed, and then if she leaves it somewhat disheveled, then you're considered blessed. Well, she's had a good night, so, you know. Yeah. And not your bed, but her own bed. You make her, her oh, own bed. Oh, okay. it's, it, it, you know, we were joking earlier before we were recording about the difficulties of living in a studio apartment in Manhattan, and this one is somewhat difficult for me. Reed may be laying in my kitchen this year, which is rather appropriate in and of itself, I suppose. Reed might get the couch. Reed might get the couch. <laughs> like my mother when she visits. So another thing you can do at Amolk is St. Bridget's Cross. If you are particularly skilled at crafts, you do this with reeds. I, I have... Bridges Cross from Ireland. I can't remember which river the reeds came from. It's one of the grand Irish rivers. I should know this. We're in a pandemic. My brain is not working. But the Bridges Cross, the Breeds Cross, is said to protect your home from fires. Since she's a forge goddess, she also keeps the embers away from your home. And then there's a lot of fire magic that can happen around this time of year. A lot of people traditionally, as you were saying earlier, did a lot of sort of hearth magic in terms of like letting the fire die out and then bringing in the flame from, you know, one of the sacred flames in the village or from a Yule fire. There's a lot of different traditions depending on where mm-hmm. you're at or from one of the bonfires that were that could also be traditionally lit on this night. And again, it was sort of this welcoming in of this new cycle this new year asking for the light to return and it's a light festival we always light candles all over the place this is a this can be a really beautiful ritual traditionally i think in wicca it's you light a candle for each of the moons in the year my coven always went a little overboard and we just lights everywhere candles everywhere it's a bit of a blend up i mean this is probably also where candle mess comes from yes exactly i mean i think it's really obvious if you were you know christianity coming in and you're seeing all of this happening you can see exactly where candle mess comes from and looking at this you know even in the catholic church this is a time of bringing back light right they really kept that main kernel of this idea so what else You've got divination. You can do some touchstone divination magic. The touchstone traditionally was a blue stone that sat in the midst of the Yule fire and burned with the Yule fire through the holidays. 
and then you place it in some water. And again, you call on the goddess to give you a sign for the coming year. And you can actually essentially request visions with the touchstone. There's this. Feels like, like, because I've not done that. And actually, this is kind of a, a new tradition for me or a new sort of, a new sort of spellcraft. So uh, is there anything around that would promote visions? Why particularly a blue stone? Like, are we talking literally a blue stone is or is this just the title? It literally be a blue stone. This one, I think, comes down through like the Bridget's Wells, you know, the Bridget, St. Bridget's Wells or the goddess Bridget's forgive me, wells which were good for divination and healing. I think it ties back into those traditions. I don't actually know the mm-hmm. like sort of mythic origins of the blue stone. And I was trying to think about that earlier today because I knew you were going to ask me. And this was just one that has been passed down traditionally that I've never actually asked about because I'm a terrible person. Oh, oh, well, this appears to be, this appears to be not necessarily blue as in like, like, baby blue or sky blue, but more like a blue-gray, and that evidently this was a common stone, you know, a common kind of rock that was available. And you'd mentioned wells, and in here I'm seeing it being used in patios, right? <laughs> right? So that kind of answered my own question I, I'm now there. kind of imagining those little, like, fairy tale well situations, you know, where you go and you throw your coin in and ask for your wish. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I wish for a bluestone pop song. Yes. It's totally how I got exactly. mine. It's totally how it showed up. Okay, so anyway, so it was kind of a, a gold stone that was that you would, maybe you would find upon as as blue as gray can get, and that would be something that was cooked in the fire. It also wouldn't be surprising if there are some rocks that changed color, if that particular rock changed to a, a deeper tone or hue. It's not unusual. A lot of rocks actually change color when you apply fire to them. If you put amethyst in a fire, it will turn to citrine. You know, cat's eye, I've been told, when you apply heat to it, turns goes from uh, golden to bluish. Hence where our blue cat's eye comes from. So it, I wonder if there's not something to putting it in your fire and then, you know, many moons later, many fires later, pulling that out and using that as a blessing. Well, also remember that with the Yule log, there's a lot of additives that are being put on it to make it Mm -hmm. burn differently. There's a lot of magics going into that. And one of the other sort of things you're supposed to do at Imolk is any greenery that you've hung for Yule now needs Mm -hmm. to be burned, which I also think is interesting. You know, any holly or ivy or any of that stuff that you've hung to garland your home, your hall, whatever, this is the time of year then to burn it and to sort of cleanse everything out from this old year. So I also kind of wondered about that in terms of the stone that's been sitting in your hearth, right, for however long at this point, that you're then going to take out and put in water, totally different medium, (laughs) different element than fire, and seek visions from. So... Before, when we've talked about pursuing visions or putting a person into a different state, there are a number of ways that you can go into sort of this altered state wherein you would have visions, potentially. One of which is you could ride your broom with a little bit of um, flying ointment. And that was a very specific sort of chemistry going on there. Or you can sit in front of a fire and you can gaze into a fire. And something about a fire or 
listening to the waves lap against the shore or the rain coming down on a tin roof. It's that pattern with randomness baked in, with chaos baked in, that you can see a pattern in the fire. The mind, the eyes want to latch on, want to find the pattern, but it's never the same way twice in any given moment. Thus, it's, it's a pattern, but it's also chaotic. And that gets the mind chewing, a bit like a sound machine that you may want to put yourself to sleep to. But when you can get the mind chewing, that then moves the part of the mind that is critical, that is, uh, you know, does the deep evaluation, that wants to, to assemble the world into a nice, neat, and tidy order. It moves it out of the way and puts you into a semi-state of trance. So is there anything additionally other than potentially the use of fire in this circumstance that might lend to having visions? I've always used the candles in ritual. And this has also been like, so for my ML rituals, this is one that can take a while. And you give each person in circle sort of their own time with the touchstone to take as little or as much time as they want. And so for, for me, I've always used the flames in that sense to do this. But I think this is also one where if you have a way that works better for you, you can utilize that. We've done this ritual a couple different ways. We've done it in circle, like all together. And then we've also done it with, by essentially allowing each person in circle to take it or to stay in circle while the rest of us sort of leave them to it to get whatever, whatever visions are going to come to them. Do whatever meditation they, they would like with that. So when you are pursuing visions with the fire, how do you go about doing that? This is one of those... Do you come at it with a question, or do you just come at it with just an open mind? Are you looking just to bring in information, and how do you interact so that information is you know, turned into something that you can grapple with? I've always tried to do this, and this is one of those questions. It's like it's the reason we're doing this podcast, right? Because some of these things I've mm-hmm. been doing for so long, I don't even think about it anymore. When I mm-hmm. go into this sort of meditation, I really try to empty my mind out, which is really hard to do, right? <laughs> Anyone who's tried meditating will tell you that this is like one of the hardest things. Like you would think you could just like sit in a room and stare at a candle and think about the candle and just not think about anything. And we all know that's not how this works. But I do. I try to really clear my clear myself out, stare at the flame, focus on nothing but the flame, and sort of make myself an empty vessel, if that makes any sense, and open mm-hmm. myself up to anything that might want to speak to me in that moment. We haven't talked at all about invocation, and it's, I think, a more... I don't want to say that's a more Wiccan thing. I know neo-pagans invoke as well. There's invocations in, in most neo-pagan religions, but in Wicca, at least, invocation is a very specific act where you ask deity to, well, there's, again, multiple levels to this. I kind of try to put myself in the state, though, that I am in when I invoke, mm-hmm. which is is more than just having a clear mind, but also sort of be actively, passively open <laughs> to whatever wants to speak to me, which is a kind of a delicate balance too, right? And this is part of the reason you're Mm -hmm. in a circle (laughs) 
which is a sort of a protected situation where you're walking between the worlds where you can safely open yourself up to spirits or deity or whatever you want to call it to let them speak to you. So I try to put myself in that very passive yet active state. And I don't know mm-hmm. that I'm describing this very well. Maybe I'm failing right now as someone who is used to teaching, but it's been a minute. No, I get it. When I invoke, what I'm looking to do is I'm looking to as you've mentioned, clear some space in my mind. I'm having somebody over. I'm having a guest over for a short period of time. So I've got to make a little bit of room for them in the brain, if you will. And I'm going to get familiar with their characteristics. I'm going to get familiar with the things that they're interested, much as you would do for an actual visitor in your home. You'd clear a space on the couch for them to sit or potentially stay the night. You'd figure out what they like to eat, the things they like to talk about, what makes them comfortable, what makes them happy, potentially what irritates them, know what irritates them so you can avoid these things. But uh, rather than this being a situation wherein you're making room for somebody in your house, you're making room for somebody in your mind. And you're clearing out a space for them to come and sit and for them to take presence within you. I I call it kindly divine, willful possession <laughs> without total possession. Like you're not giving your house to somebody by having them come over, but you are clearing room for them to come and and present themselves in a way that's comfortable or in a way that, that you desire. Well, it's it's and, you sort of putting out the welcome mat to do it yes yeah yes. right like yeah. you're giving them permission to have that space in your head yeah in invoking is a sort of intentional divine possession and i have seen it done co-opted though with cooperation right and i well i've seen it done with various levels of cooperation across different traditions in yeah. in voodoo it's a full-on you're, you they call it being ridden and man, they are ridden in a way that I am not when I invoke. It was the one time I saw someone ridden in a voodoo ritual was a very powerful and very terrifying experience <laughs> for someone who had never experienced that before. So I, I think that at least in Wicca and in neo-paganism, there's a lot more control that goes with it. And when I'm mm-hmm. teaching students about invocation, we talk a lot about that and what that means and boundaries. Hashtag boundaries, guys. Yeah. Yeah. It is possible to allow that to go just a little too far. Indeed. Uh, and maybe we'll do a completely separate podcast on the difference between evocation versus invocation. Because I think those two things are you could go at length on. It really answers a lot of questions about how do you connect with deity? How do you connect with your inner divine? And how do you allow that to come through you and talk to you? And at times, allow it to present wisdom through you. You become the vessel for that thing, for whatever that divinity is. And then how do you use that to inspire others? There's a whole mess of stuff that I think that's like its own podcast. Oh, it would be a great podcast. You know, and I don't work with Bridget, generally speaking. I I will work with her in a general way. I I love Bridget. She's a wonderful goddess, but she is not one of the, the deities I personally work with. And so for the rest of the year, I don't generally call on Bridget, but at Imolk, I'm calling on Bridget. This is her Sabbath. This is her time of year. She is definitely the queen of this one. <laughs> and I would not yep. want to insult her by not calling her this time of year. Generally, as far as personal traditions go, I do put up a tree 
and I do light it, and I do have the ornaments. I do, I do kind of carry that crossover to an extent. Yule has a very Christmas flair in the most. I'm losing the word. <laughs> well, Yule and Christmas are really indelibly twined in a, a, a lot of ways, entwined. And of course, I, w- I was thinking in the most commercialistic yeah, way. Yeah, sure. Is where I was going with that. You know yeah. what I mean? And they are intertwined. But when it comes to taking down my lights, I tend to let it go till about Imolk. You know, I'm not ready to take the lights down from out of my life until I get a little bit more light from the outside in my life. Until the days are a little bit longer. Well, hell, it's just until the seasonal depression starts to wind down. How about that? There you go. Because I see the lighting, the holiday lighting. While others might say you've left that shit up too long, I like to say I have been constructively procrastinating the taking down of my lights until the right holiday, well, which is, well, you know, Emolk for Emolk me. is February 2nd. And what else is on February 2nd? Cannabis. No. I mean, it is. But no, I'm thinking of something else. Uh, Waffle House 2 for 1 Flapjack Special? It's Groundhog Day. I knew it. It's Groundhog Day. Yet another, if the groundhog comes out and sees his shadow, I can never remember. If he sees his shadow, we're going to have a longer winter. And if he, no, if he sees his shadow, winter is over within six weeks. And if he doesn't see his shadow, it's going to be like another 12 weeks. If he doesn't see his shadow, that means there's clouds? If he doesn't see his shadow, it means more winter. And I can tell you where that tradition comes from. That's the Kaliak, the old woman of winter, who, if she goes out on... She's a groundhog? No, she's not a groundhog. That's (laughs) a a modern American version of this tradition. But the Kaliak was old woman winter. And she would go out around this time of year. And if she had a nice day, that she made it a nice day when she went out to collect her firewood, that meant we were going to have a longer winter and she wanted a nice day to collect more firewood. But if it was a nasty day out, she was going to collect less firewood and it was going to be less winter. Oh, huh. I did not know that. Turned her, And we've turned her into a groundhog. And somehow we've turned her into a groundhog, yes. There are a lot of sort of animal-based... Well, we can get to that in a second, too. Sort of weather divinatory situations. But yeah, the groundhog is the one we know here in America. Puxitani Phil, I believe is his name here. I I feel ill-prepared in this show to talk about, to, to transition to Groundhog's Day being a, a crossover from a a spiritual story or yeah that's interesting it, i'm just curious where we transitioned into groundhog except for that maybe groundhog stay in yeah, the maybe growing animals who are going to come up out of the ground again it's in the ground it's in the belly there's a lot of these and we're americans and we kind of screw everything up <laughs> I, I don't know where the the original groundhog day like how that sort of flourished out of all of this. I'm sure there are probably people who are listening who know more about Puxitani Phil than I do. But the groundhog is the American sort of version of this. Are we going to have more winter and, or I mean, aren't it, we? And it kind of makes sense. And it's not unusual for deities as part of seasonal traditions to take on uh, to take on favor for a particular animal. You know, Ostara being an example of that. You know, taking on 
the, the patron deity for for rabbits, for all the fertility that occurs with rabbits. Which, by the way, I did a little research on it, and it happens to be quite a lot. But uh, so I kind of wonder if this isn't like sort of like a mutation of that sort of thing, or you know, if it isn't one of those situations where where in different places the thing same thing pops up because the need for an answer, or the need for a story, or the need for a celebration during a a particular period of time bears a similar resemblance. I, I wonder if this is a situation where either something came over from another place. Or if just coincidentally it popped up in that way? I would think it would be and, an and, evolution and of that need. You know, when people here were experiencing the same situations, you know, it are again, are we going to have more winter? When can we plant our crops? When can we can safely, because of course this is that time of year where if you do it too early, your entire crop cycle is ruined and that's disaster for the next year. So this is a really vitally important question to answer right now. And so knowing if you have another six weeks of winter or not changes things vastly if you're depending on the, those growing cycles. And yet it, it's hinged on an animal popping out of a hole, <laughs> right, on a, on a very specific day. You know, I wonder if this is a situation wherein – you know, you go to the town's wise person and they're like, hey, we need to know because we got to plant shit. And we can't wait for you to tell us, right? Can't wait another moon for you to tell us whether or not we should plant our stuff yet. Is it going to is it going to be cold for the next month or so? Or can we start preparing? To which, you know, you're getting pressed like, well, let's go ask a, a burrowing rodent. They'll know. <laughs> hey, they will. They're in the ground. They're watching the seeds grow, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> no. <laughs> it just seems like a side, right? Because that's a panicky question. That's like, because if you are the wise person in your group, if you, you are the person they come to for prophecy, for kind of getting the feel for how nature is moving along and how the year is moving along and looking for your deeper wisdom into the universe and its its cogs and gears. And you, you're getting pressed during this period of time to know whether or not it's going to get warmer sooner or colder, potentially. More snow. You know, that's kind of pivotal. This would be that time where they're like, come up with a decision now. And uh, you need to go and talk to whomever you got to talk to to come up with an answer. And to shift that to something else, like an animal, takes the blame off of you. Because the minute you're wrong and there's another huge snowstorm around the corner for whatever reason, they're like, look, that's what the animal did. That's what I've been told. Animal does this, then all is well. And he told me all was well. But snowstorm, not my fault. Well, and Because you know what happens there is that you get in that position of forecasting power, if you will, and uh, you mess up. That can kind of screw with your reputation. So it's a lot easier to say, well, someone else told me, and it's not my fault. It's not that I'm a bad predictor. That animal over there is an asshole. Well, you know, too, like at least with the, the main groundhog, Puxatani Phil, as I keep saying, because I like mm -hmm. saying Puxatani Phil. Puxatani Phil. I believe it's in uh, Phil. Pennsylvania. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look right. this up for a second. Anyway, but there's like a committee that goes out to, to see what Puxitani Phil is going to do. So it's not just one person, right, that's taking on this responsibility. It's many people who are all agreeing to what's going on. Here you go. Here's some Puxitani Phil free. I, how do you not know about Puxitani Phil? I know about Puxitani Phil. I just didn't know how it was spelled exactly. It just it sounds strange coming from you, but then so does every holiday. <laughs> anyway, we haven't even gotten to the salmon and the snakes yet. <laughs> There's more animals with this holiday. This holiday has so much going on. Wow. Okay, then. <laughs> well, then, yes, I see Puxitani here. And you can see it. You can imagine if you went back in time that, you know, one of two things would happen. Either, either Puxitani Phil told the truth or... As the wise person in the group interpreting Puxitani's message, you get to lead the hunt for Puxitani to do a sacrificial dinner should Puxitani be wrong. <laughs> Puxitani says spring's coming, and it ends up being more winter. Well, Puxitani's got to go. Well, you know, they're not all that far off from West Virginia, man. They eat a lot of things down there in West Virginia. So tell me about the snakes. The snake. All right. So Bridget was also associated with a snake that would be awoken out of the ground. Similar situation who would come out this time of year and tell you whether or not there's going to be more winter. So traditionally, there is a snake in ritual. Mine happens to be mm -hmm. a very cute sock snake. You are supposed to fill the snake with earth from the ground and you carry it around ritual and you... This is the part that always cracks me up because you beat the snake with a stick and you say, I shall not harm the snake and the snake shall not harm me. And this is another one of those that is, I did a little bit of research on this one earlier because this one has never made sense to me. I really enjoy beating mm -hmm. the snake with a stick. I never understand why we're beating the snake with a stick when we're saying that we're not going to harm the snake. Maybe it is to ward off. Maybe it's the, the symbolic, we're, we're doing it to this snake, so we will not do it to the real snake. You're not incorporating this practice into your dating rituals, are you? <laughs> that might explain a few things. No, I don't I don't remember beating any snakes with sticks. <laughs> oh. Mhm. Mm My dating life is a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but you have the snake in ritual and then you have the salmon. If you happen to live in the New York area, <laughs> by the way, if you would like a slightly deranged... Contact us on Facebook. If you would like a slightly deranged 30-something-year-old... We're going to do a, a totally different podcast called uh, Pagan Blind Dates in New York. <laughs> Actually, guys, seriously. <laughs> I mean, hey, I've tried everything else at this point. <laughs> oh, bless. I'm pandemic. sorry. Go on. Beating snakes with a stick. You were saying... The pandemic is getting to both of us, I think. So, yeah. So, the snake and Bridget are intricately entwined. So, there's the snake. And then you also have the salmon. And this is the time of year when the salmon are spawning in the Atlantic, the North Atlantic, in the streams of the UK. And so there are many stories of the salmon of knowledge. There are many different characters involved in the story, but essentially the, the story goes that the salmon of knowledge 
was eating the hazelnuts, I believe, of, of the tree of knowledge. The salmon was eating the, the hazelnuts and therefore had all the knowledge in the world. And there's a, a sort of a ritual where you have to catch the fish and then how you have to cook the fish. And then the first bite of the fish is going to give you all of the knowledge of the world. And so uh, a priest goes out and he catches the fish and then he kind of makes the mistake of not wanting to take the time it takes to prepare the fish properly. And he hires a servant to do it. The servant burns their thumb. He tells the servant not to take a bite of the fish. And the servant doesn't. The servant does everything he's supposed to do, but he burns his thumb on the fish oil and sucks on his thumb for the pain. And that gets counted as the first bite. So this is one of the stories. There's a lot of Taliesin stories, if you're familiar with the the Irish bard Mm -hmm. Taliesin. There's also, I believe, Fionn, who becomes the head of the Fianna. And Irish Celtic folklore is another one of these servants who, that's how he gets all of his knowledge. There are various versions of this story in... Welsh mythology in the Mabinogion. There's the story of Caridwen. Mm-hmm. Caridwen has two children. She has a daughter and a son, and her daughter is beautiful. Her son is terribly ugly. And so to make up for that, she decides <laughs> to make a potion for him to make him the smartest man in the world. A very similar story where the potion has to be stirred for like a year and a day. She hires someone to do it. He gets splashed with some drops. He sucks on his thumb. Bam. <laughs> smartest man in the world. She gets very angry at him. And there's the very famous magician's duel where they turn each other, well, they turn themselves into different animals and try to kill each other. And he finally turns himself into a grain of corn. She turns herself into a hen. She eats him. And then nine months later, she gives birth to Taliesin. Oh, wow. And I sent you a clip earlier from that. And that's how the birds and the bees work. That is how the birds and the bees work. I feel like I'm doing this dating thing totally wrong. If anyone Mm -hmm. would like to come stir my potion for a year and a day. Sorry, we're getting... Let's just just get this this right. You need to peck at someone's corn on the cob. (laughs) What? What? This is all getting cut out. This is all horrible. This is all horrible. Anyway, (laughs) I sent you the clip earlier from the Disney version of The Sword in the Stone, and it's one of my Mm, favorite scenes Uh, in all of Disney where Merlin and Madame Mim reenact this duel and I had never, it was funny today as I was rewatching it, the way Merlin wins is he turns himself into a virus that infects her. Right. <laughs> and- right. So, so not to jump too far ahead, for those who haven't seen this, it's this battle wherein they're turning into different animals, where she is a crocodile and then he turns into a hare and then she snaps at him and he jumps away and then she turns into... Uh, rhinoceros at one point. She, she it turns just, it into goes back and an forth. elephant. It's... He turns into a mouse. She turns into the rhinoceros. He turns into a goat that pushes her off a cliff. She turns into a right. dragon, not which fair. is not fair, and he calls her on it, and then she still goes after him, and then that's when... <laughs> I didn't say purple dragon. <laughs> I didn't say purple dragon. <laughs> purple dragon. It's mad Madam Mim. <laughs> and then she grabs him and then poof he's gone and he's like i'm not gone i just turned myself into a virus which <laughs> and you caught me which when did that movie come out i mean considering the like I, the era I, I saw that i was like this is very apropos for the current series right? yeah, for 
this season. Very apropos. And also Madame Mem in that movie is very Kaliak-esque in that she's the old witch, right? So I, I find that really fascinating. I think the magician's jewel in general is a really fascinating story. But anyway, the salmon, back to the salmon. The salmon, beyond the mythology, there's nothing really to do with the salmon in ritual, but it is considered really good luck to eat salmon at this time of year. So it can be, if you like salmon, it's a really great excuse to have a really nice salmon meal. (laughs) It feels like this should be a card game, the magician's duel. Just animals, right? You pick out five or six cards, and then you just start creating an argument against each other Maybe. as to, you know, pull out a card and I'm going to use this against your rhinoceros. Okay, well then I'm going to turn into a bird and peck at you. All right, screw it. I'm going to do this. Well, I, I think it could be, be great. I mean, again, he turns himself into oh, a wow. kernel of corn and hides in a pile of corn and she's like, fine, I'm going to eat you. I'm going to turn myself into a hen and eat the whole pile. And there you go. He gets reborn. <laughs> So to, to flip back to the blue stone, it actually turns out, because I've been researching while we've been talking, uh, blue stone is a, is a stone that has properties. And I can't tell you exactly what properties, and that's because most landscaping companies don't know either. But it would seem that blue stone is used for walkways and it's used for pool decking. And the reason why is because, not because it's dark, but that some stones retain heat better than others. And that blue stone is traditionally used as a stone that retains heat. Well, I know that. For whatever reason, it captures it and it, it radiates it, but it doesn't radiate it so much that it leaks it out or drains. Well, I know that there are so some stones see... that will literally explode if you heat them too much. Like, you have to be really careful uh, in terms of... Stones that are porous yeah. and have water yeah. that can get into them. They, it steams and cracks. It can explode. And that's why you should be careful throwing cold stones into a fire. But bluestone evidently retains heat really well, and it can share that. So I can imagine back when, if you were able to find the right kind of stone, or particularly bluestone, and in my research, there's a lot of bluestone in Pennsylvania. This is something called Pennsylvania bluestone, evidently, that's fairly popular. But it's used for walkways because it retains radiant heat better. And in this case, we're talking about sunlight. But I can imagine if we went back 100 or 200 400 years, you would want to keep a stone in the hearth that you might be able to take out and and bring into bed with you to keep your feet warm, you know, or that you might hold that would retain heat longer, that doesn't cool quite as fast. So I could see a stone like that having a great deal of utility because it inherits the essence of the fire through heat and then holds on to it as if it's its own. And then shares it with anybody that that holds on to it. There See something you have along the lines. Sort of sacred fire from the Yule log, and the, the mm-hmm. Yule, you know, fires that you've carried over. And and I could see having a special stone wherein, you know, because it takes in and retains heat longer. You could see that as this sort of trans magical sort of transmutation of characteristics of attributes. Where if it holds heat longer, maybe it's alive. Maybe it's taking in the essence of those events, of those rituals. Well, and maybe it's casting it back out. You know, we're trying to get the light to return to us. Yeah. Or it holds it longer. It keeps the livelihood of it. And thus, you know, when you bring that stone forward, 
it carries with it the heat of prior rituals, of prior celebrations. But I could also see it as being a very useful tool within a house because, you know, once the heat dies out, you want stones that's going to keep the radiation and heat and continue to heat the house long after the fires died. And blue stone would be ideal for that in this kind of situation. You know, if you're out camping, you, you put stones around your fire because if it's cold out and your fire is going to go out at night, you want to bring stones into, you know, your, you know, near you or you want to lay on them. Or, you know, depending on it, you might throw a couple into the bottom of your sleeping bag. So it it's interesting that the story kind of carries along, and then you go and you do a little bit of research, and sure enough, somebody's made money selling blue stone because it retains heat. <laughs> it goes from magical to, I can sell this. <laughs> well, yeah, again, I think this particular holiday, there's a lot of, I say it in quotation marks, high ritual involved, but it's still a very practical you know, holiday in terms of what it's it's focusing on and what it's doing in terms of looking forward to, you know, planting the new crops and sort of eating through your, the stores that are now dwindling. You know, there's a lot going on this time of year. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that you can kind of backtrace that, that a lot of the stuff that we look at as ritual, as magical elements, they have nuggets of truth. There was reasoning. They didn't just randomly do something. You know, there was a reason why they chose these things. Again, there is a reason why blue stone was used. And it only takes a moment of searching for that to realize that attribute carries forward in today as something that is valued in the exact same way as it was valued hundreds of years ago. Well, and when I'm, I'm teaching these things, I tell my students to look for that. Because, you know, yep. this is where you're like, okay, this is a thing. This was a tradition. This was something they were using traditionally, folklorically, whatever, we can trace this back through the historic record to the practices of the original people doing this stuff. And this is where it comes from. And it's sort of a good gauge in that sense of what's real and what's not, right? When you start breaking down sort of these ritualistic, traditional, again, I say tr traditional in quotation marks because, you know, modern pagan <laughs> practice is a very new thing, mm -hmm. in all things considered. And so when you start looking at these things and you really go back through, you know, the historic record and you're like, ah, like you just did, <laughs> like there's a thing. You're like this. There it, is. You know. Something to there's it. There's something to it. You know, I think that's good proof that you're sort of on the right path with some of this stuff. And it's not just, you know, made up quackery, you know, it, it still has relevance. It's still, you know, even if it's symbolic now, because hopefully most of us are sitting in homes with central heat or, you know, better ways than what they were probably using back in the day, hopefully. And we, you know, it's sort of like when we were talking about, you know, looking at where we get our food, right? And we're not out in the fields mm -hmm. and we're not out farming for the most part. I'm sure there are, there, we certainly have a lot of farmers out there, but again, even that's a very different thing in the modern context than it was 200 years ago. So this is another example of that. Yeah. And, and I dig that quite a bit. And I think, it, it does get a little bit lost, as, as I noticed in a lot of the, the literature as of recent. It, it seems that there's a lot of regurgitation, but there isn't a lot of deep diving. There isn't a lot of reflection 
it's more like this equals that. It's a bit like having a recipe book wherein you don't understand the elements of the recipe. You just know that if I throw these things in a bowl and, and heat them over an eye at 350 degrees, then this thing will happen and I will be able to eat it. And knowing nothing about what it is that you're putting together or how it reacts if you use more temperature or less temperature. And it feels like we, we see a lot of that in the craft, a lot of this sort of, of recipe without understanding. Well, I think it's really, and, you know, I just did it with the blue stone, right? This is a tradition mm-hmm. that was handed down to me. And, you know, for me personally, like I, I do it at Imolk and Ritual, but beyond that, it has never interested me in the deeper sense of pursuing anything more about it. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is one that there was someone else in my coven who was much more into Imolk than I was. And so I sort of, you know, she was the one who would teach Imolk. And so I never really had to do it. So this is me being lazy in that sense. But yeah, it's really easy to fall in that trap of just, well, that's what was taught to me. And I didn't have to think about it. And I'm going to teach you about it. And it it is a sign of a bad teacher if you go to someone to teach you the craft. If you say, like, where does it come from? What are the origins? Why do we do this? They should be able to give you an answer or at least say, hey, give me a second and I'll get back to you. You know, they should be able to that should be a part of what they are passing on to you in that sense, because, you know, that's they're not a book. They're not a, a Google page. They're not Facebook. They should be able to tell you what that thing is and why. True, true. And, you know, it's also a great opportunity to explore that sort of thing, because I there are a lot of traditions that kind of come through. And they have their own value, or it's a part of certain superstitions, or it's it, it has its own, if you will, nuance or flavor, but is rarely ever questioned as to why it's a part of that. It just kind of feels, it's a bit like today's acronyms. You know, when you hear an acronym and you don't know what the letters stand for, but it becomes its own symbol. And that symbol carries with it sort of a package of relationship over the things that are connected to it until somebody comes up to you and says, well... You know, what does CMD mean? And you're like, I don't know. I've never asked that. I, I know that it is associated with a number of things. I have a feeling about this as a symbol. But if you tell me to break that symbol into pieces and really get at the heart of where that comes from, I hadn't thought about that before. Because it's almost like the thing that it represents reflects back and defines it. And that's okay. Like, you're cool with that answer. And most people are. So uh, it presents a really cool opportunity to take that thing and pick it into pieces. So, yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned the blue stone. Now I've got to go and get me some blue stone. (laughs) (sighs) I'm going to obsess over that. I wonder if I could, like, tumble some blue stone and start incorporating that into my rituals because that's super cool. I'm just absolutely – I'm totally digging the fact that there's that crossover between – ritual and traditional practice and practicality that I could just throw like, you know, have my fire on, throw the blue stone next to it. And afterwards I could toss it in bed and warm my feet with it. You know, but I think there's a lot of these things in ritual, you know, that transcend all of those categories and we just don't always pay attention to them. I would agree. I mean, I think it's also, it's, you know, sort of, it's, I I wouldn't say a failing, but I think a lot of us, like, we can really get into ritual, right? Like, we can have a lot of fun in ritual and creating ritual and performing ritual and kind of forgetting how that reflects the world around us, you know, and look at the practical mundane side 
of what we're doing because we like the fantasy. Well, and that's and I and for me it enhances it, and that's kind of the point of this podcast is to take the fantasy and find the practical. Or if we're lucky, take the practical and find the the magical reflection of it, right? That there's always a sort of magical mutation or, or, or transfer that goes from practical to magical. It's a bit like we talked about the basin and that the basin was made the, out of the, the, birch. The basam. The basam <laughs> was made out of, shut up, was made out of birch, right? willow, binding. Primarily birch, willow for binding. Ash. Yes. But. But when we had talked about the birch tree and the qualities of the birch tree being, you know, perseverance and cleansing, I remember we were talking, it's like, well, do you think maybe the tree got those attributes because it was most popularly used for creating the Psalms? And that maybe that practical use magically transferred its properties to the source of the wood that it came from. Like, which came first, the, the chicken or the egg kind of situation? And I just find those kinds of things fascinating and, and fun because it, in reality, there, there's magic and the occult nestled in literally everything around you. And it's, it's it, in the mundane is nestled the magic. And you have to find where that symbol pops out and means more and use that. And it takes on a whole new meaning and a whole new level of, of personality and enjoyment. It really adds, in my mind, a whole lot more flavor to life, to know that there's all these sort of Easter eggs of, of information and, and meta-usefulness within everything around me. You know, it could be this pill bottle, this Coca-Cola can, you know, or this box that I have over here. It, all of these things have metamagical information nestled within it that's just waiting to pop out and be used in a ritual that adds purpose to your life. You know what I mean? Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. You summed it up perfectly, beautifully. <laughs> All right. So I think we've rounded out of the holiday. Did we miss anything? I think we've covered most things. You know, it's just, again, Imolk is a celebration of the return of light. And I think this year, really, we need some of that. I think hopefully mm -hmm. this with this week... We're going to see some returning to the light on multiple levels. You know, it's been a rough year. I'm definitely hitting a wall in terms of the pandemic and just that pandemic fatigue. And we all have to continue doing our best to stay safe, keep other people safe, wear our masks, stay in, don't do risky things. So I think Imolk this year has a little bit extra in terms of that, that need for hope, right? There is that chance that people who suffer from seasonal depression are getting hit extra hard. That, you know, you don't have the as much enjoyment of getting out and getting amongst other people and, and getting out in the lights of other things. This is why I think for this year, this holiday is extra important because you do need to sprinkle light through your life. And so leverage those candles. You know, if you have a few candles going, light a few more. I'm going to litter every surface in my apartment with candles this year, and we're going to really hope the cats don't light themselves on fire. But yeah, you know, especially since we can't really circle, probably most of us can't circle with the people we usually circle with, you know, it's we're still going through it. But uh, the light's coming back. You know, hope is returning. Spring is coming. We've got better days in front of us. And on that note, we'll close up the show. 
This is your resident wizard, Reverend Wade. And this is your librarian and witch, Cassandra. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the next show.